Hey, I'm Fred. And I'm Ed. And this is Create a Generation. Create a Generation of Hype. All right, Frederico, what is happening this week? This week we're chatting with Gwen Miller, who is the VP of Content at Kin and a digital video strategist. And she's got some great insights on traditional media crossovers into digital platforms. This is very key where most YouTubers flail and fall is they'll suddenly decide, I'm burnt out. I've been doing this for seven years, doing the same thing over and over again. I've decided I don't want to do beauty tutorials anymore. I'm just a sketch comedy channel. And then in the next day, they're a sketch, sketch comedy channel. Like... You can't do that. Hey, uh, before we get started, if you like this podcast that we've put together for you, please let us know on Apple Podcasts by leaving a review. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Welcome back to Creative Generation. This week, we are joined by Gwen Miller. Gwen, how are you going? Hi, thanks for having me. Gwen, you're the VP of content for Kin Community. What does that mean? Uh, so I uh, run content for Kin, which is a digital woman's lifestyle company. So we make um, uh, channels that live across YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram for celebrities. Uh, and we are aimed at women 25 plus. So the uh, the elderly audience o- online, I count myself among that number. Um, but we are, uh, we work to create very high quality TV quality content that is also very digitally native um, for uh, some of the most beloved celebrities and nostalgic stars of uh, TV. He said 25 and above is the wow. uh, elderly uh, group. It's like, elderly. Hello. It's been pushed lower and lower. I, I, I remember what? once in, in, in my media agency days, I was with a client who was running like um, like a seniors agency, and they said, oh, we really want to push the uh, the definition of senior to like 40, 40 to 45 and above. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. That sounds so young to be a senior. I think uh, in the audiences now are getting uh, uh, classed as older earlier. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, and I think especially for the internet, like this has been a long time coming to uh, edge up to the point where we can confidently build an audience that's between the ages of 25 and 44 and make a profitable business off of it. Mm. Um, so that's exciting to be able to, to you know, um, service a kind of a different demographic than um, I certainly was servicing in my early years of, of, of uh, YouTube and digital media. So basically you're saying you know, the online content space isn't just a game for the for the young kids anymore, and it's not just content for the kids. Correct, and it's you know it's it, it's a very um it's it's a very good demographic because this is the demographic that's settling down. They're having kids, and as we know, moms make seventy percent of the purchasing decisions in a household. So this is the demographic that brands want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually talking to a comedian yesterday, and he was like, "My audience is like." like all mums and it is brilliant and like it just kills it in merchandise. It kills it in every area <laughs> and all the brands want to talk to him because like mums are his, like his focus and he's like, yeah, I'm just killing it right now. Good man. Good man. <laughs> Recognizing the power of his female audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just remember when I first had a child, I was like, if I can come up with a product that targets uh, guilty mums, Man, I would make a killing. Make them feel guilty and then make them feel better for buying your product. Oh, terrible. Um, anyway, hey, Gwen, you like you, you said you're like a, you know, I don't think I'll, I'll paraphrase you, but, you know, you're a, uh, you've been in the game a while as a, you know, you're a senior stalwart in the uh, content space. Maybe that 
might be right for. Well, thank you, wrong, but, thank you. <laughs> um, but you've been like basically, I'm saying, you know, you've been you, you in, in terms of you know the online content space, you've been been around for for a, a while in, and you've built up a lot of knowledge and expert expertise. So, kind of wanted to set that up so everyone understand that. So maybe you can like give us a bit of a genesis story of how you how did you end up here uh, uh, where you are now? Right. Like, where did like, right. where did this start for you? Well, when I graduated from college, let's put it this way, YouTube was still in guy at the zoo phase. Mm. So like literally I graduated college when YouTube became a thing. I mean, viral videos when I was in college was someone would email you a link and it would show up like yay big in like flush in the upper left corner, no margins. And it would like the first viral video I ever saw was the Numa Numa guy. Like that's, that's how old I am. Like that was viral. So I certainly did not come out of college being like, that's going to be what I'll make my career off of because like nobody was making money off this stuff at that point. It was, it was, you know, it was, it was even really before cat videos were a thing. Like, so I actually started out in the television space and spent the first like five years of my career in television and it just really was not for me. Like it was very formulaic. Like there was really no space for experimentation. Everything was so expensive. The turnaround times were so great that you just, you spent six months making a television show and then would go up and would get canceled. Like there was very little learnings you could get get off that. You had, we had one data point, which nobody liked, nobody thought worked very well. And creatives just felt like it was used to kind of hammer them over the head um, and make worse content overall, Uh, which I really cannot say I disagree with them. So about the time when all my friends were like, I just did a webisode. I'm going to hide that on my resume because, you know, that's that'll never get me more work. I started thinking, huh, you know what would make all the stuff I'm developing for TV so much better right now is if you could have audience participation, if people could interact, like all the stuff that I was starting to see was possible online. Um, and I was like, oh, this is this this is going to be where things go. It's like there is not a, a, a scenario where you get technology allows you to do more stuff and things over the long term stay with the status quo. So I made a very conscious decision to move over into the digital space um, and took a step back to do it, frankly. Um, and it coincided fairly nicely with when uh, uh, the uh, big um, media companies in Hollywood started being like, oh, maybe we should dabble over there. Like, they weren't enthusiastic about it. Like, y- y- you were always the redheaded stepchild because, you know, they're like, we have to experiment over here, but we really don't like you. Like, we, we, you're, you're, we think you're, you're going to eventually destroy us, which, as we see, is, is a true statement. Um, but it was a nice transition for me because I was able to take my TV resume, transfer that over into the digital world. And when I got into digital, I was freaking thrilled um, because I saw all this data that we had. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe we have all this. Who's here? Who here can teach me about it? Like, how are we using this? Like, we know, we know, like, if you had told us 20 years ago, we would be able to see what every person, not just a panel sample, every single person who interacts with our video, what they're doing every second. Like, that's that's mind-blowing. And then I found out that nobody was really paying attention to it, at least in the kind of the Hollywood arms uh, of digital. And 
there was no one doing it. So I was just like, well, I'm just going to start poking around. And I'd be like, hey, guys, look at this cool thing I found. And I started just building kind of a career for myself where I was kind of that bridge between, you know, data and the creative mm. of being like, I, you know, I have a TV film degree. I spent a lot of years doing creative. I understand creative and especially most importantly, I understand creatives, but I also love, enjoy and eat up data. And I'm, I can kind of bridge that to help creatives understand that data really isn't there to um, destroy all their close held creative dreams. It's there to be kind of the audience talking directly to them. And they just have to, it's just in code, they have to interpret it. And, you know, it doesn't mean they have to do everything that the, the audience says, like, for heaven's sakes, we know that you should not take every suggestion in the comments and you should not take every direction that the data shows you that your audience is taking you, but you need to be in, be informed by it and know if I pull this lever, what's going to happen because I know my audience better than anybody else on earth. Look, there's, there's some super fascinating things I want to unpack there, but I just want to take a step back because like, you know, you said you were obviously there in the, that early day of that digital transition, early days of the digital transition. Um, when you decided to go down that digital path and, you know, you decided to look at things like, you know, data-driven decisions, did people think you were a little bit crazy about, about taking that path out of, instead of being traditional? I, I mean, look, yes. Like most of my, you know, f- you know, the, the kind of my peers that I kind of grew up in the industry, like it would be like, I kept, I kept telling them is like five years from now, you're going to be coming to me for a job. <laughs> and that has been a thousand percent true. Uh, you know, it, it, it pays to be the person who jumps at the point when everyone else is still poo-pooing it. Because yeah. at the end of the day, nobody can catch up with you at that point. Yeah. And I think in some ways that's still true. Like everyone's like, is it too, ju- is it too late to start a YouTube channel? Is it too late to get into this space? I'm like, in the grand scheme of changes in technology, we're still in early days. Like, mm. come on over. We can still use the fresh brain power because I don't know how you guys feel, but I still feel like we are still writing the manual. And that's what I love about digital is every six months, we have to throw out everything we've learned and relearn it because things change so fast in the space. And that's what keeps everything fresh. And that's what keeps everyone's attention instead of going stagnant like TV did for so many years. And, and do you think that's why I think TV is so, you know, traditional uh, TV and media is so frightened of the digital space? Because, of the, the, you know, it used to be a, a very, like a fortress approach. It had, you know, huge barriers to entry, very structured. And now, like you're saying, the, the rule book is rewritten every six months. Do you think that's what frightens them most? you're getting rid of the gatekeepers, right? Mm. You know, you no longer have, you know, a a kind of a cabal of a very select few, uh, you know, frankly, old white men sitting in Hollywood making the decisions of what you should consume. Mm. So the problem is for a challenge for any media company getting into this, whether they're traditional or whether they're, you know, a startup digital media company is you're not just competing. It's not like cable coming in and they were just competing with other cable companies and, and, and the networks. Like we are always competing with what I call the million monkeys at a typewriter. And the truth (laughs) is you have a million monkeys experimenting at stuff. One of them is just going to hit. Yeah. Like, and obviously we as a, as a company don't have the luxury to try a, a million times to get one hit, right? Our hit rate has to be much better than that, mm. but we are 
competing with millions and millions of people just trying a bunch of stuff and, and, and you know, like, and, and with the, you know, the tools of creation at this point is very well that we can get defeated in a competition with a 14 year old in their basement because they're more passionate about a certain topic or they just have spent a crazy amount of their waking hours thinking about this one thing, which we have not found that one person out of the professional producers in Hollywood who has spent that amount of time. So it is definitely more challenging to, in, in terms of competition and it's not kind of this safe, sanitized world that these kind of media companies had built up where you could build like these huge infrastructures of people who, you know, schmoozed other people. Like not to not to bring that Hollywood down to that, but that is a lot of what we spend a lot of our time in is schmoozing other people in the industry. And you have these kids who aren't doing that in their basement and they they can be very, very successful. Which is such an awesome thing, though, when you think about it, right? Like a, a 14 year old kid in the basement who's passionate about something could slay it com- over the top of a media company with millions of dollars of budget and years and years of experience. Um, well, you know, the problem there, though, is that they don't seem to understand that where the quality comes from is from that passion and that knowledge on the topic, not because you have a jib shot. You know, like that has been like the fallacy that I've spent my entire career trying to correct in Hollywood. Every time I work with a new media company, um, new media is another media company. um, Like they always come and being like, oh, digital's just been waiting. Not to mention Quibi's name, but (laughs) digital's just been waiting for us Hollywood types to come in or show them what true production quality looks like. And millions of views will come our way. And it's Mm. I hate to tell them. The tropes that we were taught in film school as what good television was are just that they're tropes. It is not necessarily like something that audiences are asking for. That's right. And I mean, you did just mention Quibi and I I think people have obviously talked about it to death. But is there in one quick summary in in your opinion as to why it failed that you want to add? Look, like when when it came out, it was when I heard it was happening. I was just like, oh, this is going 92.0. I did not expect that they would take what it did it take go 92 years to die, three years to die. They did it in six months. I'm very impressed at the timeline. But they made all the same mistakes, right? Yeah. Like they they were like, they they bought this lie that all people are interested in is mobile video. Yeah. And the truth is, yes, 80% of consumption happens on mobile, but they still want the option of the 20% time to be able to have the flexibility to take it to whatever device they happen to be on. And there's just, our industry does this all the time. It's what's trendy. It's all the live companies that started in 2016 because Facebook decided for a hot second to promote every single live that anyone went live in it on the Facebook, uh, you know, front page. And then suddenly 2017 stopped it. Like we are so bound by the trends. And I think that's a lot because the decision makers at these big Hollywood companies, they don't understand the space. They don't watch the space. They're just hearing for whatever the buzzword is that year. Mm. And then throwing a lot of money at it. Mm. Interesting. And it's funny, like how, like like you mentioned, like a kid in their basement or just like, you know, a, a YouTuber, a small nimble operation can create, something much bigger than this, you know, like a lumbering beast in, in Hollywood um, and, you know, get more viewership, more eyes, more attention, um, ultimately it's going to be more profitable. Um, it's, it's crazy how that's changed in such a short amount of time. 
Yep. That's a thousand percent true. Like, and I think it's, you know, it's the means of getting in front of your audience. Audience has changed. What, like, let's say 30 years ago, what were you going to do? You're going to get your, like, you're going to book an hour on the local, like, you know, public access channel. And you were that crazy person who was doing a public access channel show. Like (laughs) there was nothing like this in terms of having the distribution. I think that's what people don't, you know, when we all complain about, you know, YouTube and taking like 50% of your revenue, but you know how cost prohibitive it is to like host your own video. Mm. Like just the idea of like, if you were to like, you know, like, especially like 10, 10, 15 years ago when they start doing this to have this idea that you're there, they give unlimited video hosting to anyone in the world is still kind of mind boggling to me about how that's even possible, even in 2020. Yeah, that it's better not to think about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, um, Gwen, like with what you do at, at Kin now, though, you, you guys essentially straddle this. And like the the divide between traditional and digital, like when you talk about the celebrities that you work with, um, they're like in inverted commas traditional celebrities, right? They're they're like they're famous from TV and and other things like mm-hmm. that, right? So how does like how does the traditional talent end up working in digital and 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 vice versa? You guys sort of crossing that divide then, right? Well, you know, 10 years ago, I would have been said, I would have said, no way this will work. Um, You know, it just, and I think that was more the nature of where traditional celebrities were 10 years ago. Like now it works. And I think the reason it works now is like the celebrities we work with are fans of digital media themselves. Like 10 years ago, all these traditional celebrities have been like, I don't get the language of how to do this. But now, like, they all see, they know the formats. They know how, they know, they know how YouTube works. You know, like, when I, you know, like, six years ago when I would have tried doing it, you would have gotten a very hosty vibe off of a lot of these traditional talent because that's what they're used to from TV, right? Now they get it. They get the language. They get the authenticity. So it definitely is a lot easier now. Um, like uh, we work very closely with them to kind of break through the last like barriers of like, okay, you're going to be looking right in the camera all the time. And that is ridiculously uncomfortable for usually the first half of the first shoot. Like, you know, they're not used to like treating the camera as a, as another person and I'm talking to you. Um, but if you, you know, we have a kind of a kin university, we call it that we put them through that it just gets them comfortable with kind of the nuances that are the changes to being on digital video rather than on television. Um, that has been really effective and, um, they transition pretty well. I will say that the really nice thing about working with traditional talent, I love my digital talent that I work with, but Traditional talent, you know, especially when we're working, you know, these are these are women who've been in the their the, the business for a long time. They're mm. professionals. Mm. So there is a level of they know how to work with a crew and with a team. Um, so it, in some ways it goes it goes smoother because, you know, digital digital talent, like they're used to doing it all themselves. And it's always really thrilling to them when they can get a team to help them. But there's usually a little bit of, you know rough stages of getting through okay now it's not just you making all the decisions now you have a team who's doing stuff with you and you need to like work together and the traditional talent since they've been on sets for the past 20 years um 
that tends to be a little bit easier of a hump to get over because this is, this is you know, this is what they do. This is what they do for a living. But then again, we have to teach them the more digital stuff that's just very native and natural to the digital talent for sure. So you mentioned professionalism, and I mean, that's something we sort of see uh, come up all the time, um, especially talking to like, you know, people working with brands and, and traditional media companies. They're like, we, we like the professionalism of dealing with people who've, who've been in the game for a while and sometimes dealing with like YouTubers or influencers that can be hard because that level of professionalism sometimes doesn't exist because they've never had that experience. Uh, and how do you sort of tackle that? Yeah, I think, you know, I think part of it is, yes, you're uh, both types of experience, but also you got to remember that I'm dealing with a little bit of older person as well. Like I'm dealing with a woman, not to tell our town's ages, but above 35. Um, so they've just had a little bit more time in the world to experience different ways of interacting with people. I, I will say when I do work with digital talent, it's just remembering the simple things. Like sometimes like they don't even know what a conference call line is. Mm-hmm. Like, Like they don't understand how to hit reply all in an email. Like there's things that we take for granted for, you know, even just a year on the regular workforce. Like most, a lot of these, these kids have, you know, they never even went to college. Like this is what they've been doing and they've been very successful at it. So I think it's, it's, it's being mindful of what you need to educate them on Mm. and not treating them like they're stupid because of it. It's just like, Hey, you know, making sure like if I set up a phone call, a conference call with a digital talent, I will make sure to explain things that I would not explain to anyone else. Um, And, you know, they appreciate that. And you just have to adjust yourself a little bit thinking through the perspective of the person that you're, you're working with. And also at the end of the day, like giving them some life skills they can use later on their career. Cause I always tell the digital talent I work with is you need to treat this as a pro sports sports career. Like, you know, we don't really know. I mean, YouTube hasn't been around for that long. We're starting to see, I'm starting to get a better picture about what a, a typical life cycle of a YouTuber is, but still we don't for sure know how long some of these guys can go. Like, mm. will people want to watch some of these gamers stream when they're 50? You mm. don't know. Like keep telling them like, save up your money, invest it. Maybe don't buy the house in Malibu yeah. <laughs> um, because at the end of the day, you're going to need some life skills for later in life. If you don't want to be, you know, doing the grind of, of YouTube until you're 65. And that's really fascinating because we were having this conversation with a creator yesterday and they were like, you know, I'm creating this content, but I don't know what, like how long I can keep doing this for. It's not like he'd do it forever if he could, but how long would an audience be willing to watch that for? You know, in, in the traditional right. industry, there's a, a certain trajectory you can do and go into different areas. But with a lot of the times, right. especially with YouTube, people watch for a very specific reason. Um, and there, I guess there is a, 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 a lifespan of that and, and what comes next. And one of the things, you know, people are looking at is like, well, can we go from, you know, YouTube to traditional or YouTube to somewhere else? And, you know, that, that becomes a, a big question, doesn't it? Yeah, I think the problem with the switch from from uh, YouTube to traditional is the age difference in the audiences. Mm. So we actually can do that fairly easy with our talent base. And that's because we are working with people who are already on TV, but also because we're aiming at a slightly older audience. So when I have an average age of 25 to 34 and a television uh, cable channel that we're selling content to has an average age of 44 
that's not as big of a difference as if your target audience on YouTube is 13 to 17 year olds. And I think that's the problem we've seen with a lot of these YouTubers trying to transition over is the demographic is just so vastly different that nobody on TV is interested. And I don't really see a scenario where TV is getting those younger audiences back. Mm. Like, it's just, that's what they've been trying to do. Like, track the, like, you're, you're an outmoded piece of technology. Mm. Um, like, there's, you're not going to get, like, you're not going to get that generation back. Now, I do think there is a, a world where you have a lot more symbiosis between, um, like, the Netflixes and the streamers of the world. Because that, young eyeballs are watching there. Mm. But I just think it always has to be clear that if you're taking a YouTuber whose audience is mostly 17-year-olds, you better be targeting an audience on your surface on your surface that is 17-year-olds. You're not going to suddenly take their audience and magically transform them like a genie into someone 30 years older. <laughs> well, what about format? I mean, you mentioned the Netflixes, which are obviously one step closer. But what about a format from YouTube that you try to take to, to a Netflix? Like, what do you think the challenges are going to be there? I think this is very interesting because I think that's always been the holy grail of like, we'll pilot things on YouTube and then mm. we'll take it to some sort of more like television. Yeah. But I think what we found very clearly is like those are two two very different viewing experiences, even for myself. Like what I want to watch on YouTube is very different than what I want to watch on, on Netflix. Like I don't go to YouTube to get a, a format per se. Like I go to YouTube for the personalities, but I definitely do go to Netflix for the format. Like I'm not, I'm not going to Netflix and clicking on the rock talking about himself, you know, like I want to see the rock, you know, in a scripted show or maybe doing a game show. Like that's the kind of the expectation I've set for myself when I open up Netflix. Right. Mm. Um, And I think that's the problem when you're going back and forth, but like everyone's been trying to do, let's do a, let's do game shows on YouTube. Well, people don't go to YouTube to watch a format. Uh, If you see something very formatted on YouTube, you immediately are like "Ugh, fake. Mm. Like this is not authentic. Like, why am I watch, uh, wa- watching this when – and it's just like – it's a slight change. It's like you don't do a game show on uh, on YouTube. You do a challenge. Mm. And what's a challenge? It's a <laughs> game show but not formatted like a game show. It's formatted like you're pl- just naturally playing a game with your friends. We decided to have some fun today. Let's do this thing. And it does not feel so produced and gimmicky. Yeah. So that's kind of the problem you have. I think probably where you're going to have more success is spinning something off, right? Yeah. So you kind of have a germ of like, I know my audience is this. They enjoy X type of thing. What is off that that's more formatty that I could sell to a, you know, a, a, a streamer that wouldn't feel like YouTube content, would feel like television content, would feel very formatted and feel very fun, but would still be very true to my audience core. So I could use my existing base to push and promote over to the streamer platform. It's funny you, you mentioned that because there's a uh, there's an Australian group they're called Auntie Donna or Auntie Donna, I guess the... Is that how you no, say no, it? No, 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 no. Artie Donna. Auntie? The, the Americans can can say that, right? <laughs> how do you say? How do you say? When you say Auntie Donna? Uh, how do you spell this? Auntie, like aunt, like, as an aunt, A U N T. Oh, oh, okay. Um, I would say Auntie, but right. I'm not. I have Boston relatives, and I know we say it weird. <laughs> right. Okay. So is it Auntie. <laughs> Auntie. There's a group called Auntie Donna, and they're a, they're a, a famous uh, comedy trio here who have really um, obscure 
uh, f- super funny humor and they do a lot of sketch comedy and they're very popular on, on YouTube um, and they've got a lot of live shows and stuff and they've just got a new Netflix show called Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun um, and it's like a six episode um, show based around this house they live in and all these sketches put together. Now, I guess going from you know sketch sketches which are very short, fast, up and fine, and really absurd. Um, trying to put that together in a sort of cohesive fashion for Netflix, I think that was going to be an interesting challenge. And they're basically taking these sketches, but sort of revolve them around like a a, th- a key theme for each episode and around this house. So it's um, it's interesting, and I've been watching it the last couple of days. And I think it's fantastic. It, it's, it really is hilarious. But it is like effectively all their sketches string together given uh, around a, a certain theme. And I'm f- fascinated as like, will that be like the first step forward to to what creators can start to do? Is like, how can you create like, you know, what is the essence of what made them great on YouTube and what is the common denominator if they're watching on a platform like Netflix? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just I mean that was me just ranting for a little while, yeah, but no, I'm well, wondering to I, I see mean, what the next to, level to, is. Yeah, to, to you know wrap that in a bow. That I, in my mind, I I did start watching it last night. Bizarrely funny stuff, um, but like they've almost set up the sitcom format of you know a share house of three friends, and then you know crudely crudely worded would be saying they wedged in their 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 um, sketch comedy into that but essentially that's the sort of cross format between their youtube content and an existing tv streaming type format so i think that's a it's an interesting place to see where that goes um hey i want to backtrack real quickly gwen on something you, you mentioned um briefly in passing where you said you're getting a pretty good picture of what a creator life's uh, lifetime looks like um, what what are you what are you seeing in that like I'm super curious to see that this is interesting because I'm kind of at the initial like data collection on this but I can give you directionally what I kind of been seeing I, 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 I came back to this recently because um, in about 2014 I did a kind of a big survey um, for the company I was at at that point um, on like who are kind of the, the up and comers in the space. And I was thinking about that recently. It's like, you know, it's been six years. I, I like what happened to those people? Cause that really was that 2014 class was like YouTube 2.0. Um, you know, this was, you know, this was the changing of the guard from that first, you know, like the first core YouTubers to kind of the second, they were louder. They were a little bit more outrageous, like kind of that YouTuber that we've kind of now come to now. And I was like, you know, where are they now? So I started going back in and pulling from that list and just seeing like, what was, you know, what was their trajectory? How long did it, first of all, take them to kind of hit the inflection point when they really started to take off? Like, what was the grind to the point when they're like, they could legitimately say they made it. From there, when did they hit their peak? And from there, when kind of what I I kind of casually calling it hit the point of irrelevance, right? (laughs) And what I kind of found, and now there are some, there are some notable exceptions that are like been going since like 2007. And they're still like, now I will say they're not at their peak. Like no one stays, stays at the peak. 
but like they have managed to make themselves long-term careers where they can make decent money. But what it takes in that case is the ability to not get so full of yourself that you always have to be getting bigger and bigger. Unless you're PewDiePie, you're not going to keep getting bigger and bigger in this space. Like there's a few notable exceptions to this rule, but it almost proves the rule, right? So if you're able to get, let go of your ego and just build a very solid business, you can keep going on YouTube. But what I find for typical YouTubers, what you see, and this is funny because before I started doing this research, I always had this rule of thumb for like the channels that you start in your basement, like you're going to be grinding for around three years before you really see that, you know, like that traction to the level where you're going to be making good money off of YouTube. Again, there's all the exceptions, but typically that seems to be the thing is you've got to put in the sweat and tears for three years before you can like really be bringing back, you know, in pretty good money. So once you hit the three-year mark and you start seeing the line going from inching up to like shooting up, typically there's about two years to peak. So at about five years into a YouTuber's career, it's typically when the peak happens. It can shift, but it's been surprisingly consistent in the research I've been doing that about the five-year mark is when they've kind of hit the pinnacle of their glory. They kind of rule the world at that point. Um, And then, like, the problem psychologically for YouTubers from there is they've been feeding off for five years that slow growth Mm. or that rapid growth, but some sort of growth, even in that first three years where they're grinding, they're still seeing every uh, upload do a little bit better than the upload before. There is a big psychological motivator and that keeps you going on the grinding YouTube. Then you hit your peak and like naturally, like not everyone, like you're going to, something crazy is going to happen in your life. You have this format that just blows up. And for, for a year and typically it lasts about a year, you were like the hottest, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, but the hottest, whatever, the hottest shit on the planet, like, and you're riding high. From there on, like, you start going down. Now, for another several years, you're still, for all intents and purposes, one of the top performing YouTubers on the platform. But psychologically, it's difficult because each, you know, each upload isn't getting a little bit more. You kind of, you're coming more into stasis. And in that case, the kind of the things that I've seen that decides if you stay around is if you can psychologically handle that. And if you can be flexible enough to experiment so that you stay in the zeitgeist. But this is very key where most YouTubers flail and fall is they'll suddenly decide I'm burnt out. I've been doing this for seven years, doing the same thing over and over again. I've decided I don't want to do beauty tutorials anymore. I'm just a sketch comedy channel. And then in the next day, they're a sketch sketch comedy channel. Like, you can't do that, right? You can start slowly experimenting and seeing where the audience is taking you. But a lot of the times, because of the pressures of burnout and the pressures this platform puts on creators, they end up and they end up burning out themselves and going down kind of in, you know, they just they can't keep it up anymore. And they try some drastic things that don't work because the only sure way to survive in this industry is to be methodical, Mm. to slowly experiment, but never let yourself get complacent and just be like, well, I'm doing these same two formats for the next five years. And then, you know, wonder why your core audience is like, I've been watching the same thing for two years and they end up leaving you. But you're like, but I got all these viral views. The viral views are not your core audience. You need to be looking at what your subscriber base is doing and ignore 
ignoring kind of the the uh, fake signals you get from virality. That, that look, that is absolutely probably one of the best things anyone's ever said on this podcast in terms of advice. I think um, in terms of that methodical uh, approach and understanding the subscribers really clearly. And I mean, look, you you talked about it before in terms of look, uh, making smart decisions and data driven decisions. Can can you just sort of maybe outline that a little bit more for us? Yeah, I, I, I think the key thing is like, you know, whenever someone asks me, like, what's the secret to gaming the algorithm? Like, you can either you can like, yeah, you can sit down and learn like you can sit down and be like, here are the machine learning algorithms that YouTube puts all content through, you know, like to select and understanding that might help you some. That's something that I'm fascinated with. And I I know, and I do think is helpful, but at the end of the day, if you're always following the algorithm as it stands today, you're always one step behind because the algorithm is always changing. Mm. The best thing for you to do is to go where the algorithm is going. And any single one of these platforms, I don't care what platform it is at the end of the day, they're pursuing audience satisfaction. They don't always get it right. They get it. it, Sometimes they put things in place that have unintended consequences but at the end of the day that's where they're trying to get and are trying to optimize towards so if you put up content that is super serving your audience in the long run like it will be it will be what the audience what the algorithm wants once they get the algorithm more right so that's what i say that understanding your data isn't about understanding how to game the algorithm it's understanding what makes your audience tick which in turn is the way you game the algorithm like youtube would love to be gamed if what you mean is like i'm gonna make super great content for my audience will be like great bring it on like that is what we're trying to get you to do like this is what they're trying to incentivize you to do so if you do what they want you to do like you're gonna get the cookie Like, and that's what I love about data, though, is you've got to realize, like, as I mentioned before, it's just your audience talking in code. We know exactly what the audience is doing every second of every second of every second of every of every video. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you you can get sucked into comments and comments are just the loudest loudmouths of your audience. Like and you look at you can look at the data and oftentimes it will directly contradict and what the, you know, we love this. And you're like, well, actually, like, you know, we had this huge drop in retention because people obviously didn't love it. But if you left, like you weren't mad enough to comment, I hated this. But it's very obvious that when you say more of that, you don't really mean more of that. Right. <laughs> uh, so I just like it is something that you cannot substitute understanding what those co- that coded language means. And it does mean putting a little bit of time. Like if there's one place you're going to put your time in, it's to understand the basic structure of your data and what each data point in conjunction with each other is telling you. A lot of people get weighed down because they want to pick one data point. As we know, a lot of that is views, right? But I've had, I had a really, um, one of the, one of the YouTube 1.0 uh, creators back in the day, this was like eight years ago, told me that she only looked at her like to dislike ratio. And I was like, oh, and you know, because what does that get you? If you're looking, if you're trying to minimize your dislikes, <laughs> that's just going to get you very bland content. Um, so sure, like you have a good like to dislike ratio, but nobody's going to stick around. And her channel did end up dying within like a year of that. So like you cannot get 
like can't pick one data point like you have to have a holistic view and yes it takes a little bit more work and yes you can probably get through that first part of your youtube career and be just fine by being that you know one of those million monkeys who hits the jackpot <laughs> but you're not going to stay there unless you put in the work to understand your data which is in turn understanding your audience which is in turn giving the algorithm what it wants and ensuring that you stay relevant mm. hey, look, you're you not ha- going to get the cookie yeah, you know, no, no cookie for you. That. Yeah, that's from you, Quinn. But you know, YouTube, YouTube could go from that uh, aspect of you know likes being everything and subscribers now becoming you know the, the number, the metric, especially being less relevant, and then over to watch time, and then into satisfaction being being a key thing. Um, like, what can you get from your data to um, help understand what is satisfying an audience? <laughs> and this is why it really is a holistic thing, right? There is no, like, there is no single, like, satisfaction metric. You might say it's the like button, but the like button is very faulty. The reason people click the like button does not always correlate to actually how much they enjoyed watching the video. It correlates to if they feel like it's something they should give a thumbs up to. Like, yeah, yeah. they may have only watched the first minute, and it could have been essentially a bunch of platitudes about something we all agree on but isn't really that interesting. They clicked the like button and then got bored at minute three of a 10 minute video and they left. Uh, So I think, you know, this is why I say like getting to know your, your retention graphs is very important. Like, and it's one of those things that it is not as easy as being like, I'm just going to pull this data and put it in the spreadsheet and the spreadsheet's going to tell me something like uh, retention graphs, especially like, you don't really learn a lot unless you spend a lot of time in your data over multiple videos, just getting to know like the ebbs and flows of your, of your retention graphs. And when I usually say retention graphs, I usually mean the relative retention graph. There is things Mm. you can do with the absolute retention graph, but it's, it's a little, it's, it's, it's more difficult. Like the nice thing about the relative retention graph is it really clearly tells you for every second of your video, like compared to, uh, you know, all the other videos on the platform of civil, similar length, would YouTube expect you to have more or less people there at that point? How much better than average are you at keeping people there or worse? And as you see these big dips and valleys, like you don't learn a lot from one graph, but over time you learn a lot. You learn, are there consistent things that make your audience be like, eh, I'm not here for this. Or, eh, I am here for this. For example, I have some chan- channels who I would say are my girl next door channels. Like, we have to be very careful about making them feel unrelatable. Mm. Like, they, they can't be, like, you have to be careful about it feeling like they're flaunting their wealth. Mm. Whereas I have other channels who really like their audience is just like, you go, girl. Like, I love, I love seeing you get, get your own. And, like, you know, we can show the elevator in their house and there'll be a spike in retention. Whereas if I did that for some of my other channels, like people would be like, oh, you're, you know, like for some of my channels, I can't have them show them cooking shrimp because somebody will comment like, oh, shrimp for rich people. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, it's crazy because you think like uh, all your channels are women 25 plus. They must be identical, right? That is not true. Every single audience is unique unless you spend time like looking what they're engaging with and what they're, you know, what they're, you can, you can kind of use the the contents the comments to kind of give you directional like color to your data and uh but otherwise it's a lot of looking at what are they clicking on that's a big one like what's your subscriber ctr is one of my big ones because you can have a video that might go kind of viral with the rest of the world but your subscribers might be looking at that topic and being like "Mm, i don't like that topic 
So you can start to parse in, is it the topic? What's that What's that click-through rate? Is it the actual content? Because they may have really liked the, the topic, then they clicked in and you did not execute well on your content. You can start finding, pinpointing exactly where things are, went wrong because a lot of creators can, can overreact and decide the video was crap. Uh, when truly like the video was fine, it was, they weren't engaging with the thumbnail or, or the topic. And you just need to know that that's not a great topic for your, for your audience, but the actual structure of your video, when people got in there, they watched a lot. So you shouldn't be changing your production style or anything like that. You should be picking a different topic. I, I think, and also what I'm picking up, what you're putting down here, Gwen is, um, it's not just a simple, and you know, pick this data point and you know improve that or, or focus on that and you'll do better or and or there's not some back-end hack to you know cheat the system to get more views it's a, a you've got to really put in the effort and work and I, I think that um it's not the answer that a lot of people want like it's like what's the secret source but the secret source is 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 many different things going into the pot um Correct. which is yeah like we're big advocates of that too. And it's really great to hear the way you sort of break that down into to specific examples as well. Hey, um, Gwen, as always, could always chat to you forever, but we're kind of running out of time. Um, we normally ask for advice, but I think um, for creators, but I, um, Fred, if you'll, you'll humor, you know, humor me with this one, I, I'd really like to, just to know what's in, in your crystal ball, what do you see the future of all this? Look, you know, I think the future is still the same future it was a year ago, but it's been massively accelerated by what the world has gone through in 2020, right? You know, I I, I remember back to when I was, you know, early on in my career and the writer strike in Hollywood happened. Like that was really the beginning of the end for television. It never went back to normal after that. Like after that, they never regained the ground they lost to digital and digital has just been gaining slowly and slowly every year. And I think you can see it in kind of the uh, shakeups we're seeing at the big Hollywood companies right now. Mm. They're all restructuring around their OTT. Mm. Like it's frankly a bloodbath over here right now. Mm. Uh, and I think that is something that would have happened in the next couple of years, but now it's happening now. And it's accelerating really fast. The things that I'm really work, looking at in the future is we've always said community is important. But I think even more than ever, if you're starting to look at the new battleground is not being dr- uh, drawn between TV and digital, that battle has been la- lost. Now we're looking at OTT versus the, the more social platforms. And, and, you know, the one thing that OTT still lacks is it's not really an interactive thing. Like, yeah, now you can do Netflix party, but, you know, like it's like that's still what the social world of YouTube and Twitch and TikTok have is this ability. Like even now, like I will see something in a Netflix and be like, want to put down a comment. And I'm like, oh, I can't do that here. <laughs> so I think you're going to start see that kind of a face off kind of even more differentiate between what is what is social video and what is just really reporting traditional TV over, over to Netflix. I think the two platforms that I'm really looking at right now is Twitch and TikTok. Let's do the test. Um, you know, obviously, I think TikTok has been kind of the big story of this year. Uh, and I think that is all together due to their, um, uh, their uh, swipe up 
method of serving videos to you that has kind of opened up a magical world of discovery that is always hard on a click-to-play platform like YouTube. But Twitch, I think, is the kind of the silent killer right now. I think they have a lot going for them. I know personally for me, uh, just during these pandemic times, like Twitch has this vibe that none of the other platforms have. It moves a lot slower. If you're doing live on any other platform, you're pattering. It's like freaking QVC over here. But on <laughs> Twitch, like they're just sitting back, relaxing, playing games. They may go quiet for 30 seconds before they comment on something. Like it is a totally different vibe. And I think it's more akin to in-person interactions. And I think especially in a world where we're a lot more fractured and apart from each other, that's very important. And I don't think that's going away after the pandemic because I see we're moving to a society that is no longer so centered in the cities. Mm -hmm. And you'll probably see a lot more people working remotely in other places. And I think a, 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 a platform like Twitch has a lot of opportunity to kind of replace that feeling of in-person community great insight and awesome place to uh to finish up i think uh we've been so lucky to have you just impart so much knowledge gwen genuinely need that so thanks so much for hanging out with us and and, and sharing you your thoughts and, and you know gazing into the crystal ball and, and um yeah it's been awesome we will see <laughs> we'll hold you to it i'll tell you i'll remind oh, you yeah to, to check down the list <laughs> Come back to me in a year. Hey, I'm on, I'm on board with you too, so I'm going to throw my hat in, the, in the, the, the the ring with you with what you said too. So we'll go down together if we're wrong, or we'll rise up together. How's that? Perfect. Love. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Miller, thank you so much for hanging out with us on Creator Generation. Creator Generation. We're on the mic.